Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. you take your copies of the scriptures this morning and open to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. In a moment, I'll read verses 6 through 8. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 6. And this is a good promotion for Wednesday nights coming up, where we will be studying together the book of Revelation. I'm excited about that. I'll be honest, it's a little daunting to think about going through the book of Revelation, but I am excited at the same time to see what God's Word would say to us and how even the book of Revelation, God would use that to transform our lives and how we live now for our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this morning we come to Revelation 19. Would you stand with me out of reverence and respect for God's Word as I read Verses 6 through 8, and then I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. There are particular days in your life that you will never forget. It could be a day, a milestone in history. Something happened on earth that was amazing, shocking, made headlines, and will be discussed for generations to come because of its impact. It could be a day, a personal milestone in your life. A day that changed your life so that it would never be the same again. It could be a day that brought great joy, an exhilaration and excitement. 
It could be a tragic day with devastating events or news in your life. But a day that changed your life so that your life would never be the same again. Can you think of a day like that in your life? And how about this? Could you pick just one day that made the biggest, most influential and lasting impact on your life? A day, one day, that you would say, I will never be the same because of it, and I don't know how any other day could compare to that day. And this morning... The Apostle John comes to us, the one who penned the book of Revelation, and says to us, you ain't seen nothing yet. Here in the 19th chapter of Revelation, we encounter a day unlike any other day that has ever come before it. It's not just any day, it's the day. It's the day above all other days, a day so unlike any other day, a day with such a lasting and internal impact that no other day could hold a candle to this day. It is a day that is the consummation of, the, of God's purpose in history. Everything has been going forward, moving forward to this day. It is the climax, the pinnacle of what God is doing in the world. What is this long-awaited day? What is this consummation of God's purpose for all of human history? Would we be surprised that it is a wedding? It's a marriage. The climax of all of history is the day Christ will return for His bride, the church. In these three verses, John lifts our hearts, souls, and minds to the greatest day there will ever be. Does your heart need a lift this morning? Is it weighed down and burdened? Is it sorrowful or discouraged? Is it desperate and despairing? Wanting, needing, longing for something to change? Have you ever cried out to the Lord? Something needs to give, Lord. Would you let these verses lift you today? Would you let them encourage you? Would they make your heart sing? We should sing. After all, what John gives us here is heavenly liturgy. What is liturgy? Liturgy is a formula for worship. It's a plan or a pattern for how one worships. It could be in private worship. It could be in public worship as we see here. Now, we might want to reject the idea of a formula for worship. Some might say, we want our worship to be spontaneous We don't want it to be mechanical or rigid or dry or scripted, but let's be honest for a moment. Everyone, everyone has a liturgy. Even the one who says worship must be spontaneous, guess what? That's a liturgy. And let's be cautious here because some would try to fool us 
or deceive us and saying that they are trying to get rid of liturgy, they want to be more casual, more informal, more laid back. Why would they promote that? Because many today say the way that you are authentic is if you're casual, laid back. The problem is that's a very modern way of thinking. You could be inauthentic with a rigid, dry, scripted liturgy to be sure, but you could be just as inauthentic with an informal liturgy that is just spontaneous and casual and laid back and informal. John here, though, communicates a heavenly liturgy. We might do well to look at this liturgy as a pattern for our own liturgy. What does our worship look like? What are the patterns of our worship, the formula of our worship? How do they conform to this pattern here that John gives us in Revelation 19? It comes from God's Word, after all, so it comes from God. We're to follow the rhythms of heaven's worship. These are the meaningful rhythms of worship. These are the peaceful, hopeful, steady rhythms. Rhythms that beat with the very heartbeat of God Himself. Rhythms that cause us to direct all of our being to God. That's our prayer and what we desire to happen every Sunday here. Lord, let us follow the rhythms of heaven and its liturgy. We jump in here a little bit to this worship service in John 19, 6. Actually, the worship has already been going on. The song has already been being sung. And so if you go back just in chapter 19 here, you can see first there was praise to God for His judgment over Babylon and how through this judgment He saved and avenged the blood of His servants. So that's verses 1 and 2. Praising the Lord for His judgment over the wicked Babylon, over the world, and how He saved his servants, and avenged their blood, the blood that had been spilt because of the persecution that came from this world. Next, God is praised for destroying Babylon. Do you see that there in verse 3? Once more they cried, Hallelujah, the smoke from her, that's Babylon, goes up forever and ever. It's not enough that she is just judged. She is destroyed in a perpetual destruction. And then, after that, the Lord is praised by those who fear Him. Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. This appropriate fear of God. And we are told to praise our God because we fear Him. And you can fake a lot of things in this life. But you can't fake fear of God.
what the Lord has accomplished, He has accomplished for His people. We see that here in these rhythms. They're praising the Lord for what He has done, and what the Lord has done has impacted greatly His people. And so finally, we get to the worship of the Lord that praises Him, here in these verses, for His fulfillment of all human history and bringing to pass what He had promised all along. What had God promised? His desire to live in relationship with His people. God again dwelling with man in peace, unity, and harmony. And it is praise for the marriage that takes place between the Lamb and His people. His bride. It's praise for the celebration of the marriage that's later called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we are invited in with the voice of this great multitude. Do you see how they are described here? I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. So what's going on with John? Sometimes in the book of Revelation, John sees things and sometimes he hears things. And oftentimes it's the things that he hears that bring this great rejoicing to his heart. And so now it's John hearing something, he heard this great multitude. And what was this multitude like? The roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Who are these people? Well, Revelation 14.2 describes this same multitude. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. Who were those? Those were all the redeemed of the earth. The entire assembly of the saints praising the Lord at the consummation of history, particularly for their marriage to Christ. And so what do we learn about this marriage? And what does it mean for the church, for us, to be Christ's bride? Why is that important? Well, let's learn about this marriage through these verses this morning and what it means for us to be Christ's bride. If you have your outline there in your bulletin, you can follow along. Number one, our marriage to Christ is cemented with certainty. Our marriage to Christ is cemented with certainty. The first word out of the mouth of the great multitude is hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. Now, pop quiz for you this morning. How often is the word hallelujah used in the New Testament? How often do we use that word? Quite a bit. We sang it today in our songs. We sang hallelujah. That word hallelujah is actually only used four times, and the four times are here in Revelation 19. <laughs> hallelujah, praise the Lord. Something that we might exclaim all the time here is coming from this heavenly worship of the saints over and over and over again. But we must ask ourselves, why? Why are they praising the Lord? So look at it there, end of verse 6, hallelujah. Why? Because, or for, the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. They are praising the Lord, and we should be praising the Lord 
for his sovereign rule and reign. It's exactly what we see happen in the Old Testament. So here, this heavenly worship that John is hearing is actually an echo of Old Testament worship that was happening in verses like Psalm 91.3. The Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. Or Psalm 96.10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Or Psalm 97.1, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Or 1 Chronicles 16.31, let the heavens be glad. And let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. But even as the Old Testament continues to resound with this praise that the Lord reigns, there's something that we must understand. The Lord's reign has not established in its fullness yet. Does the Lord reign? Yes. But has the complete fulfillment of His reign been established yet? No. So even the Old Testament talks about this. Listen to these verses. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. What was Isaiah doing? He was looking forward to a day. He was saying there's going to come a day when this gospel of the Savior is going to go out and it's going to proclaim good news of happiness. It's going to publish salvation and it's going to say your God reigns. But Isaiah was looking forward to that day. Or Zechariah 14, 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and this name, and his name, one. So, there, what is Zechariah? He's saying, I'm looking forward to this day when the Lord will be, that's future language, will be king over all of the earth. While all of these verses look forward to the end time rule, the rule established at the consummation of history, when everything is put under subjection to Christ's feet. Now, in this worship in Revelation 19, there is the expression of the Lord's reign as complete certainty. And how do we know that this reign and rule is certain and complete? Look at the description of the Lord our God. He is the Almighty. That is, He is omnipotent or all-powerful. His power is complete and perfect. No other power can overthrow Him or even challenge His power. We don't even understand what power like that is. What kind of power is this? And what's more, if we were to look in the book of Revelation, this title the Lord God, the Almighty, is used seven times. This is the sixth time right here that it is used. But in his revelation, John uses the Lord God, the Almighty, seven times. If you want to look these up later, you can. 1-8, 4-8, 11-17, 15-3, 16-7, 
19.6, that's here, and 21.22. If you want to check up on me, make sure that I'm counting right. You can do that later. But seven is an important book, uh, important number in the book of Revelation. So when John uses this title seven times, he's actually communicating something to us. He's telling us something. This isn't by accident. It's not like, hey, John got to the end and was like, what a coincidence. I used the Lord God, the Almighty, seven times. He did it deliberately, purposefully, because in Revelation, seven signifies completeness and wholeness. So through these, we are told God's sovereign reign and rule is complete. It is whole. It is lacking in no way whatsoever. It will be a full and final reign over all things. And there is security and certainty in God's all-powerful reign. We need this and this reassurance when everything else looks like it's spinning out of control. When everything in our lives is chaotic, messy, less than ideal, and it appears as if the darkness is closing in, like the darkness is winning, this song exclaims to us, no, the Lord our God, the Almighty, He reigns, darkness will not win, death does not win, sin does not win, the devil does not win, the Lord wins. Take it to the bank, he is sovereign, and here's what it means for us, church. The Lord will not leave his bride standing at the altar. Like we are here, ready to be married to our groom, Jesus Christ, and he leaves us. He says, no, I'm not going to marry you. The fact that the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns, means that our marriage to him is secure. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. I've been married for 19 wonderful years and many more to come. But you can take this to the bank. I have let my wife down and I will let her down again at some point. Maybe right now I am. (laughs) But Jesus Christ will never let his bride down. He will never fail his bride. People might fail you in your life. People that are very close to you, people that you love, husbands, wives, kids, other relationships. How are you going to make it through those times? If you're hoping for someone else to be your savior, you're going to be greatly and sorely disappointed. But if Jesus is your savior, you will never be disappointed. It says here, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. It would be more accurate perhaps to say, begun to reign. With the destruction and judgment of Babylon, now is the time, the fulfillment for the Lord's sovereign reign in its fullness and in its completeness. And this right here, this verse 
at this beginning of this song, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, is the development of verses that have already been said in Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, just go back here for a second to Revelation 11, 15 through 17. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and what? And begun to reign. And this verse now in Revelation 19 is a development of those verses there that were said in Revelation 11. And that's our hope. That's our hope that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And do you know that that verse has actually broken in and given us glimmers of that even now in our lives? That the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ? How does that happen now? It happens not through ease or comfort. It happens through difficulty and trial and hardship. It happens through young people who are diagnosed with terminal cancer and who live their last few moments and days for Jesus Christ. It happens through men who have everything taken away from them that they might hold dear in their lives and they hold fast and firm to Christ, to Him and to His glory. It happens through women who experience great tragedy and rejection and loss who hold fast to Christ. When this world this fallen and broken world of sin and death and darkness and evilness have tried to overtake them and overcome them. It has not made their faith waver. Why? Because they know the Lord's sovereign reign and that their marriage to Christ and so our marriage to Christ is cemented in certainty. Number two. Our marriage to Christ is the reason for rejoicing. Our marriage to Christ is the reason for rejoicing. Verse 7 comes with three consecutive commands. These are not suggestions. <laughs> they are exhortations. Do this. Rejoice, exult, or be glad, and give Him glory. Maybe these commands would seem odd to us. This is a wedding after all. Weddings are supposed to be joyous occasions. 
after the wedding ceremony, there is usually a big party, just as there will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Is this command given to rejoice because we don't really want to rejoice? Maybe you've been to those weddings where you're not all that excited. It isn't joyous for you. Maybe there's doubt in the back of your mind. Should these two people be getting married? As you paste a smile on your face, go to the wedding all the while believing that it might be one big mistake. Is that why we're instructed to rejoice here? Because we're not sure if this marriage is going to work out? No. This is the most miraculous wedding and marriage there will ever be. A marriage which all other marriages are patterned after. This is our Savior and Lord being united to His bride, the church, forever. Christ loves the church and He gave Himself up for her, having cleansed her by the water of the Word. This is the church who submits herself to Christ in everything. What rejoicing should flow out of such a spectacular and astounding union? Yet maybe the reason for the commands flow out of what we know had to take place in order for this union to happen. So I want you to look here for a moment so you can hear this. Verse 7, let us rejoice and, my version says, exalt, or it could say, rejoice and be glad. All right? Rejoice and be glad. So now turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Verses 22 through 24. Psalm 118, 22 through 24. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us, what? Rejoice and be glad in it. You hear an echo here of what the heavenly choir of God's saints are singing. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. But don't forget the stone that the builders rejected has become our cornerstone. Don't forget the stone that was discarded, that was thrown out. The stone that the builders said was good for nothing. The one who is God incarnate was nailed to a cross of wood to suffer and die. The stone that the builders rejected has become our cornerstone. The stone upon which the whole building and structure depends. Upon Him, our salvation depends completely. This is the day, the day that the Lord has made. This day of salvation is glorious even though the stone was rejected and stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice, rejoice Because the Lord is our salvation, the day of redemption, the day of the suffering servant, sacrificing himself in our place, bearing the awful weight of sin, and receiving the wrath of God that we deserve has brought our salvation, and this is the consummation of our salvation in him when we are united and married to him. Rejoice and be glad in it. And yet there is another 
significant verse for us to consider. Matthew 5. Do you love that verse? I mean, rejoice in the salvation of the suffering servant that saved you. Revelation 5.12. Let's start in verse 11. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Then what? Verse 12. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now let's contrast that for a second. Rejoice and be glad for the salvation that has come through the suffering Messiah to save you from sin and death. And you're going to experience suffering. You're going to experience persecution. You're going to experience it when all kinds of evil are uttered against you and persecuted, and people persecute you falsely on Christ's account. And then what are we to do? Sulk. Suffer in misery. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I think I'm going to go eat worms. Rejoice and be glad that you were counted worthy to suffer just like Jesus suffered. Rejoice and be glad in it. Now do you see? Rejoice and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Number three. Our marriage to Christ is preceded by preparation. Our marriage to Christ is preceded by preparation. <laughs> you think of a wedding day? A large part of that day is spent with the bride getting herself ready, isn't it? Getting her hair done, getting her makeup done getting her nails done. Nothing is left undone. At the end of verse 7, it says, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Don't forget, don't skip over those words, the Lamb here for a moment. Again, a reminder of what John saw in Revelation 5, a Lamb standing as though it had been slain. Here is the Lamb through whose blood he ransomed people for God. It's the death and resurrection of Christ that has made this marriage possible. The basis for this marriage covenant, this marriage union between Christ and his people is his sacrifice and shed blood. And then the action is placed on what the bride does. She makes herself ready. So let's be explicit here. The bride, in these verses, is the church. How does the bride then make herself ready? By doing the works and the righteous deeds that she has been called to do. She makes herself ready by working out her salvation with fear and trembling, like it says in Philippians 2.12. Or like Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or 1 John 3, 2 and 3 Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. How has the bride made herself ready? She has been obedient to the commands of Christ. 
She has kept herself from being stained by the world. She has sought to practice righteousness. But all of this is not done to earn her salvation or make herself deserving for her marriage to Christ. But rather, it is because she has been, this is important, it's because the bride, we, us, the church, have been justified, that is declared righteous, by God because of Christ's righteousness that she lives a transformed life in this world. So, she has been justified by God, and because she has been justified by God, she lives a transformed life out of that. The justification is the root of the tree of salvation, The works that the bride does to make herself ready is the fruit of the tree of her salvation. And let's get this clear. Transformed living, which is what we're to do as the church, is not just the proper response for the one who has been justified by God. It is the necessary response. It has to happen. Why? No fruit, no change, no transformation, that's a problem. The bride will make herself ready, will live a transformed life because of what God has done. And so we must then, we must then be purifying ourselves as Christ is pure. We must then be Christ's workmanship, God's workmanship created in Christ for good works, that we should walk in them, obeying Christ. But it brings us to number four. Our marriage to Christ announces our virtuousness and our victory. Our marriage to Christ announces our virtuousness and victory. While the verse right before this, where the bride has made herself ready, focuses on the bride's responsibility, now we are brought back to what has been given to her or granted to her. You see it here. It was granted or given her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. As we read these verses in the context of the book of Revelation, we remember that the bride here in this fine linen is contrasted to another woman in the book of Revelation. So just flip back maybe a page or two in your Bibles to Revelation 17, 4. Here is this woman. In verse 3, she's sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. Now verse 4, this woman. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So there you have a woman... who's clothed 
with worldly and fleshly appeal. All the wealth and opulence of the world has been lavished upon her. She also is known for her actions, but she is known for the abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. How complete a contrast is that with the bride of the Lamb, who has been given clothes to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure and white. White clothes in Revelation are worn by saints to signify a gift from God given to those with testified and purified faith. So listen to these verses. In Revelation 6, 11, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow saints and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So here are these martyrs who had been killed for their faith in Jesus Christ and they're given white robes. They persevered in the faith. Their faith had been tested and they had been purified by holding firm to the faith. Or Revelation 7, 13 and 14. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. With tested and purified faith, they are given white robes. They represent human good works and faithfulness that are necessary evidence of one's right standing with God. They represent the bride's virtuousness and purity. How is this possible? It's possible because the bride has been clothed in garments of salvation and robes of righteousness that are based on the work of Christ. Listen to this verse in Isaiah 61, 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Here Isaiah is rejoicing in this clothing of righteousness and of salvation. Now, Revelation, these are the righteous deeds of the bride that are a result, again, of God's works in her life. These are the saints who have shown steadfast endurance. They've kept the commandments of God. They persevered in their faith in Jesus. But these white robes also represent vindication accomplished by God's final judgment against the enemy on the behalf of his people. They are vindicated for the lives they have lived under the Lord. They are victorious. This is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. Why? Why as this choir of saints is exclaiming the praise of God about the marriage of the Lamb to His bride, the church. Why does He come back to this clothing here? Clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Because this clothing of the bride gives strength to the exhortations in the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bible for a second, quickly as we close, flip back to Revelation 3, 5 and 6. Revelation 3, 5 and 6. 
The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Then skip down to verse 18, chapter 3. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. One more verse, Revelation 16, 15. Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. What's the exhortation as we look at this clothing that adorns the bride? If we hear these exhortations from Revelation, it's this. Don't soil your garments. Don't go walking around naked and expose your shame. You are clothed, bride. There are these fine linen you will put on, white and pure and bright. Don't be stained by the world. Don't be like that emperor in that fable who was so deceived to think that he was wearing some special clothing only for a little boy to shout out from the crowd, the emperor has no clothes. What clothes have we been given by God and by Christ himself? What clothes do we adorn ourselves with as we live for Jesus Christ? Don't let this world ruin those clothes. Don't let us seek to take off those clothes in any way to expose our nakedness and our shame. Let us remain clothed in these clothes. Let us look forward to these clothes. Let us rejoice in these clothes because us who were stained, who were sinful, have been cleansed by Christ himself. To think that us who were sinners, us who were unfaithful, us who were adulterous people, Christ died for us to take us to himself so that the church would always be his bride. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. May it come to us in such a way that it would change us and transform us. And Father, I pray if there is someone here this morning who does not know Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. That today would be the day that they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That today would be the day that you would convict them and that they would say, I've been stained by the world. I've been walking around naked and shameful. That they would come to Christ. That they would be clothed with His righteousness.
that they would know that only through Christ can that stain of sin be removed. Only through Christ can they, can they be made clean and new. Only through Christ is their hope. Father, make us a people that rejoice in this marriage, this union to our Savior Christ, and let us look forward to this day. A day unlike any other day, a day that we will never be the same. An eternal and lasting day where we are married to Christ, united to Him, finally, fully, once for all. And then let us celebrate in the marriage supper of the Lamb as those clothed fine linen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.